Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Roger Webb. Well, good morning to everybody. Glad to see everybody here. Let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And I guess I should apologize before time because uh, uh, this was not intended to be the Christmas message. Therefore, it is not. <laughs> so we, unfortunately, unless you, get a, you got a Christmas message, which I hope you did, uh, from some other venue, uh, we'll not have one here this year. This, uh, we are expecting pastor to, to preach, like Mark said, on two hours of sleep uh, last week. That was, that was quite an adventure. I'm, I'm uh, uh, sure we could uh, share what was uh, going on um, Not only, not only were, was the weather bad here, but naturally further south they were going to fly into Dallas. Uh, Dallas was closed most of the day. And two airplanes landed at Dallas on last uh, Saturday. One of them was pastors and faiths. So I'm sure after 15 hours in the air, they were certainly glad of that. But that was just another link in the chain that led us to think, well, let's uh, cancel last week's message or service. But this week we're going to be talking about our freedoms in Christ. But before we start, let's pray. Our Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to praise you for what we have in him, what you have freely given to us. We rejoice in you. We praise you and thank you for your goodness and for your wonderful works to the children of men. As we, as we look at your word, we pray that you would open our minds to it, open our hearts to it, so that we might begin to understand how blessed we are. Well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How often do we talk about in, in our country how blessed we are as Americans because of the freedom that we have? Just tremendous. How, how many significant freedoms the, that we enjoy in, in the United States of America that other people throughout this world haven't a clue and... and so, so often we see uh, people who, you know, they're on the news and you, you get, sometimes you get the, the impression that everybody else in the world hates Americans, but how many people want to come to America? And because we have these freedoms, and, and it's such a tremendous blessing 
that we enjoy. However, too often people think freedom means I can do whatever I want. And this quite, that, quite frankly, is a recipe for disaster. Because as any family will tell you, if you have one person in the family who does whatever they want, regardless of the results in the rest of the family, chaos ensues. It's the same on every level, whether it's a personal level, whether it's a family level, whether it's a country level, or a, a, any group of people living together. For the freedoms of our country, that our country was built on to work, it is up to each individual to personally restrict themselves before God in respect to other people so that my freedoms don't impinge on another person. And I say before God because one of the things, and we could spend a lot of time building up and debating back and forth whether this was ever a Christian nation or not, and back and forth, and, and a lot of it depends on your, your definitions of terms. But one thing is for sure, there was a stronger basis of understanding of the fear of God in the founders of this country than exists now. And as the fear of God, and I should say this, the fear of God is what guided that, that commonness, that fear of God in those early founders is what led them and guide them to, guided them to desire this freedom. And it was the guiding principle that kept, you might say, each person from, from running into each other, from those freedoms from clashing. But you know something? No matter how free people are, and we see uh, people exclaiming how, well, I just, I got an email uh, this past week about some of the uh, um, atheists' statements on their, their freedom. And I'm free from the slavery of religion. Yeah, well, maybe that's true, but you are servant to the most severe taskmaster ever known to man. We who are in Christ enjoy greater freedoms than anybody in this world because we are free in Christ. We have freedoms of a spiritual nature. Freedoms that cannot be taken away even by the most oppressive regime ever known to man. In the Lord Jesus Christ, 
I should say, the Lord God has given these freedoms to us, just as Jesus said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? It's a good question. Well, that's what we want to find out today. That's what we want to talk about. And we'll actually, this is the first part of a two-part series. And the second part, which, Lord willing, I'll be giving the next time I speak, is how do we regulate that freedom? Because just on a personal level, if we don't, if we think, oh, I can do whatever I want. I'm a Christian. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Well, as we'll see, the operative word in that, that statement is true, but the operative word for that statement is want. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. What are our freedoms? The first freedom that we have, which I've kind of danced all around so far, is the freedom from sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, probably one of the, the most blessed verses of, of the entire New Testament. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Stop and think about that verse. That the great and holy God of all flesh, he who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and he cannot look upon iniquity, he is the one who will not at all acquit the wicked. But he can look at me in Christ and say with all truth, I find no fault. In him. That's an amazing thing. That is awesome to think that this holy God can look passively at me when I deserve such wrath, when I deserve nothing but his, his anger and his wrath. This is truly the grace of God because I myself deserve nothing but that wrath. But indeed, Jesus took that wrath. Jesus took the Father's outraged wrath against me. As, I'm, as I view the Lord Jesus on the cross, I see Him on that cross, and in the mind of God, every single sin that Roger Webb ever committed God took and imputed to my Lord and then poured out His wrath against that sin. And, God, and Jesus, being an eternal being, bore an eternity of the wrath of God because of my sin. And this is applied to every person who solely trusts in Christ's shed blood for their sin. 
Not Jesus' blood plus going to church. Not Jesus' blood plus being good, giving my tithes, being a good person, or plus anything. It is Jesus' blood plus nothing. Because in reality, any plus anything negates faith. It is, if it is God's grace, it is, if it is something given, then there cannot be any measure of merit involved in that transaction. And we have to say, Lord, just like the Lord Jesus, into my hand, I, into thy hand, I commend my spirit. I am yours. I deserve nothing but wrath. Save me, because you promised. I was once speaking to a lady. We were, I was witnessing, and uh, uh, this lady told me that she had studied theology for many years. And she knew that there was no way anyone could tell that their sin was forgiven, and that they were saved, and that they were on their way to heaven. Well, I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, maybe in your theological studies you never saw it at 1 John 5.13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you believe on the name of the Son of God. And what a blessed truth that is, that the, the God of eternity looks passively at me, not with anger, not with, not with a determination to give me what I deserve, but to pour out His grace upon me. But there's more than that. More than the promise of someday being totally free from, from the very presence of sin. God gives us the power to be free from sin now. We can enjoy the freedom of sinlessness now. Now, before I go on, before I, we, all we need to do is back up to Romans chapter 7 and find out this is a process called sanctification and as long as we are in this on this side of glory that process will never be completed i mean just in romans chapter 7 paul in the most personal part of that book says what i would i do not but what i hate that i do it's a very personal very Present tense, this is what I end up doing all the time. The things that I know to do, I don't do. But the things that I hate, those things I do. And it's, 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 an, it's an amazing dichotomy that, that sort of hits the, the Christian. God gives us the freedom, and we'll talk about this, about this more and more. God gives us the freedom to be free even from the, from, 
from sin right here and now. We can live sinlessly. And, and there are times in, in our lives where we can put a few moments of sinlessness together, sinlessness together and, and grow in that righteousness. But at the same time, I'm finding as I, as I grow in the Lord that the closer I grow to Him, the more evident my sinfulness is. And so even though maybe on the outside it might appear somewhat good, on the inside I... I'm becoming more and more aware of just how sinful I am. But stop and think about what Christ has given us as far as freedom. The Christian who loves his Lord and wants to be like him revels in this desire and longs to have this sinless perfection in him. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 8. What is this? How do, we, how do we do this? How do we accomplish this? Now, if we be dead, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also Live with him. Now, the surface application of this statement is that after the resurrection and we're in heaven, we're going to be with, with Jesus. And that's true. Thank you. <clears throat> we are. Because of the grace of God and the salvation that he has provided, we are going to be forever with the Lord. But really, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking here about here and now. How we, still in a sinful body, can live a sin-free life. Our identification with Christ not only means that we will be with him someday in his new life, but we are now with him in his new life. Stop and think about this. Not only someday will we be with the Lord in his resurrection life, but we are right now in Christ. Where does it say, where is Christ seated? At the right hand of the Father. Where are we seated? In Christ. In the heavenlies. In Christ. Paul is talking here and now. This living with Christ means we continuously live considering Him and His desires for us. When we live, well, again, here's the illustration. Living with Christ means that we're constantly considering and living for Him. When a couple live together, and there's a few uh, couples married here, 
in the, in the audience. So you're all very easily aware of how this works. It means they can only stay together with no difficulties as long as they are both living their lives, taking into consideration the other's likes and dislikes. Suppose one has this rather disgusting habit. I'm not going to go any further than that. And the other member of the couple explains to them the, the uh, revulsion that they see, what, what they have when that uh, uh, happens. When they, well, let's use a real example. I crack my knuckles. It makes Joni wretch when I crack my knuckles. Okay? If we love that person, we will freely give up or at least try to give up that particularly repulsive habit when, at least when we're in the presence of the one who objects to it. Okay? When we fail to do that, and particularly as we go on, if we fail to, to live desiring the blessing and, and fellowship of our spouse in this illustration, we're going to end up in trouble. Our marriage would end up in trouble. Take that to our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we live with Christ, we continuously take into consideration His likes and that is, by love, serve one another. His dislikes, sin, and make our plans and decisions as best as we can in accordance to his known wishes. Okay, and that's basically what we're talking about here. Again, Chapter 6, verse, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him consistently. We, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, What's Paul talking about? He died unto sin once. And remember, we are identified with Christ. When Christ died, well, let's, let's continue on here. As we live that life with Christ and are conscious of our identification with Him and what happened to Him, Christ died unto sin, that is, when he died, he forever removed himself from the arena of sin unto a completely different arena of life. Death and sin no longer has 
any relationship whatsoever with the Lord Jesus. While he was in the flesh, he was constantly bombarded by sin from the outside. Never once, I'll say this, never once did sin come from the inside to have him desire to sin. But from the outside, it was constantly surrounding him. Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. The temptations of Satan against the Lord Jesus. That's just a small sampling of what the Lord Jesus went through constantly. And he had temptations that you and I could never even fathom. Take for an example. If you are really, really hungry, really, really hungry, and somebody said to you, turn that rock into bread, would that be a severe temptation to you? No. I don't have the ability to. He did. It wasn't, wouldn't be a temptation to me. It was for the Lord Jesus. Get your mind off the will of God. And this is really the underlying thing. Get the mind off the will of God for yourself and do what is pleasing and easy and pleasant for you. Don't bother about God's will. Don't bother about what God wants you to do. Do what you want to do. Is that a temptation for us? Absolutely. But what about Christ now? He's, he has died... To sin. He is completely taken from even the external opportunities of sin now. And we are identified with him in the heavenlies in Christ. Look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Since his resurrection, sin and death has absolutely nothing more to do with Jesus, because sin has been paid for and death has been conquered, Christ can now live totally for God and his will. Verse 11 again. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. What is he talking about? It means in our daily lives, this identification with Christ needs to be a conscious reality. 
We need to be consciously aware of our surroundings, of our circumstances. And count myself dead to sin. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. This is the principle. Now, let me, let me go back to a previous illustration. How often do you think I am successful when my knuckles feel that urge to be bent beyond their designed positions? How often? And Joni's sitting right next to me in the car. How often do you think I'm successful in not cracking my knuckles? <laughs> well, you can ask her, not very often. And she'll hit me and stop it. That sort of thing. Why? Because I don't think about it. I just feel this, the, the need to crack my knuckles, and I, and I crack my knuckles. Don't think, about, don't think twice about it. That's the problem. I'm not conscious of her desires. I am not thinking about her. I'm not considering her. I'm failing to be aware of my circumstances. So it is with sin all around us. When we're tempted to get angry with somebody, just for whatever reason, or somebody says something and, and we have to stop and say, I'm not going to respond. I know this this comeback is, is waiting, and I'm just going to tongue-lash them. I'm going to make them feel the same pain that they made me feel. No. The Lord, that would not be edifying. That would not give me the opportunity to share Christ with that person. That would not be pleasing to my Lord. Therefore, I'm not going to respond in that way. When other people are tempting us to do what, is, what we know is wrong, whether through gossip or lying or peer pressure, we must tell ourselves, no, I'm dead to that sin. That sin has no power over me. Christ died. I died in Him. I'm free from that sin. And I want to please my Lord. That's why we as Christians cannot afford to live life merely existing and reacting to various stimuli like some sort of amoeba in a pond. We're made in God's image. We're remade. We're being remade to reflect that image. God wants us to show us to live like it. We are to constantly remember who and what we are. Peter tells the, the early Christians in, in, uh, in 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, 
Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Think. Think about your circumstances. Think about who you are. Think about what God expects of you. Because where is our battleground? This is, this is the essence of spiritual warfare in the day-to-day Christian life. Facing that sin, facing that temptation, and say, not saying, I'm gonna, not going to do it, but say, I'm dead to it. There's a difference. But where is that battle raging? Right here. Again, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thought that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's where our spiritual warfare is being waged in our mind. What we think about, what we allow ourselves to meditate on, and we have influences. What is that TV influencing me to do and to think and to say? What is that billboard or, or that, that group of people that they're gossiping and talking about that other person? On the other, on the, that's the negative part of it. On the positive part side, we need to be remembering, I'm alive to God. I am walking with Him. Often we're tempted to do things that may not be wrong, but they're not glorifying to the Lord. I have opportunity. Do I really want to, to uh, please him? Or do I want to just please myself? Again, you might be sitting at the TV, again, using the, the, the husband and wife illustration. You might be sitting at the TV watching a football game, and your wife is... Doing this, doing that, doing the other thing. You know, as Mark said, you know, thank Deb for all the hard work she, that, that she do. And, and, and uh, that does sing you know, the, old, the old saying, uh, a man works from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done, which is so true. But she gets frustrated. She's trying to get some, you know, 14 things accomplished. Is it wrong for you to sit there and watch TV? No. There's nothing wrong with that. But wouldn't it be helpful? Wouldn't it be encouraging to her? Wouldn't it be a blessing to your relationship to get up and help her? To do what is pleasing to her? (laughs) 
I'm telling on myself too. Please don't think that I have succeeded in accomplishing this very well. But how often do we have opportunities to serve the Lord, to witness to that person, to share the gospel, to to edify one another, to build up one another, to serve in some capacity in the church, i.e. nursery, and he said, oh, we, I, I, I'm not gifted in that way. I'm not going to do that. That was a, uh, a uh, not so uh, uh, subtle hint, but I'll go on. Here Romans 6, 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey it in its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under Law, but under grace. Now, that phrase leads us very clearly to the next freedom. We are free from sin. But there's another freedom that we have. And the two are very closely knit together. Skip down to verse 15. What Paul does a lot of times is quote objections, maybe that he has heard, or maybe that this is just his logical development of of the argument. But he says, look what he says. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? You see, we're free from the law. And there are, well, let me just say this. How many times have people who wish to remain under some form of law or are seeking to gain their own salvation through works stated Something like this when you're trying to talk about, I, I know I'm saved, I'm going I'm, I'm to go be, to, be with the Lord forever. They'll say something like, uh, you mean to tell me that you think once you're saved you can go out and do whatever you want and you're still saved? Well, like I mentioned at the beginning, The operative word in that phrase is want. Now there are many responses to this argument. And I'll say yes, you can do whatever you want 
to do because you're not under the law. But what you want to do will be a very clear sign as to the reality of what God has done in your life. And we'll talk more about this as we go through. Like I said, there are many answers to this objection. Paul gives one, which we're going to look at in a little bit. But let me, give, let me suggest some others here. This statement reveals a gross misunderstanding of God's purpose for the law. As many of you know, God gave the Jews a whole list of regulations and laws to accomplish. But God never intended... To have the law, well, I should, well, let me put it this way. The law was never given by God to be a restrainer of sin, but rather as an amplifier of it. I like to say the law makes sin sinnier, if there is such a word. It makes it worse for an, on a number of reasons. First of all, if you have a known rule and you willfully break that rule, you've not only broken that rule, but you've added rebellion to the sin. There's another thing. It's the old uh, do not touch, wait, wet paint illustration what's the first thing you want to do when you see the sign that says do not touch wet paint but that's what the law does how often do you tell your children don't do that and that's what they do as soon as there is a restriction there Because of our sinful natures, we want to break it. You mentioned Romans chapter 7, which is an exploration of, of, of our sinful natures. But in chapter 7, verse 9, Paul says, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Hey, I could do whatever I wanted because I was without the, I was, I didn't have the law. But then somebody told me, don't do it. And now, oh, doing it means I'm rebelling against that law. What was the purpose of the law, as we're told in the New Testament? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What was it designed to do? It was designed, A, to provide a standard, 
and B, to show us how far we are away from that standard. The one good thing about the law is it is a good illustration of the righteousness of God in very practical terms. But the fact remains, we don't live up to it. I often use this illustration, and, and this is more of a guy's illustration than a lady's illustration, but if, you are going to, if you're doing some carpentry and you wanted to put a, a, a board up and nail it and make sure it's nice and straight, and so you put that board up and you put a level against that board to make sure it's nice and straight, can that level make that board straight? No. What can the level do? Tell you how far away from straight that board is. That's what the law does. It tells you how far away from the righteousness of God you really are. It does not make anybody righteous. It cannot. Any more than that level can make that board straight. That statement that we referred to before also reveals no understanding of the ability of the grace of God to transform a sinner. It assumes that because we're under grace and not law, that there's no longer any restrainer to sin. Even though the law was never a restrainer to sin. Because we're under the grace of God, we have all sorts of restraints against our bent to sin. Our new nature. The, Holy, the indwelling Holy Spirit. A love and gratitude to God for the free forgiveness that He has shown. All these things combined make us want to do what is pleasing to Him. With all this for us, we are certainly motivated and empowered to keep away from sin. Those are some of my responses to that, that objection. You believe that if you can do whatever you want and you're still saved? Well, here's Paul's answer in verses 16 through 18. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody to obey him as slaves... You are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul here sets up a, a beautiful word picture. Paul previously taught the internal changes that were made in the Christian in order to keep him from sinning. So he paints this word picture. Picture a slave. 
brutalized by its master. Just beaten up and pummeled and, and, and crunched and, and beaten down and treated like dirt. Brought to the brink of destruction. And by the way, in this illustration, sin is the master and the law is its whip. Now, that picture, that slave is brutalized by its na- their master and brought to destruction. All of a sudden, that f- slave is freed by a liberator. No, you're no longer a slave to that taskmaster. You are free. However, instead of the natural gratitude that we would expect that that freed slave would have towards his liberator, with a cold heart he returns to his tormentor to receive beating and destruction. That's the word picture that Paul says. Why in the world would you want to? Oy vey, what's wrong? This is what I said. The operative word in that phrase is want to. God's salvation is so great and so blessed and so marvelous and so freeing. Why would you ever want to go back into that slave market of sin? When your only destiny would be physical pain and suffering and destruction... But you know, that's so often where we, we get so wrong in our thinking. So often we'll get into this mode of thought, well, let me know right where the edge of sin is so I can get right up to it, but I'm not sinning. Charles Spurgeon wrote a story One day he was hiring a carriage driver and said, do you know such and such a road? And I I forget the name of the road. And the carriage driver said, he is interviewing three uh, uh, prospects. He said to each one of them, do you know the, the such and such a road? Yes. You know that sheer cliff on the side of the road? Yes. How close can you get to that, that sheer cliff? And the first guy says, I could get within a foot. And the second guy says, I could get within six inches of that. And the third guy says, begging your pardon, sir, but I want to stay on the complete opposite side of the road. Spurgeon said, you're hired. And I was, trying to, I was trying to think of a more modern example. How many of you could, how fast could you drive down Peter's Mountain? Anybody been on 147 down Peter's Mountain? 
How fast could you come down there? I don't want to drive with you if you can. And that's the whole point. And let this be a huge lesson to us. If our desire is, I want to see how close I can get to that edge, but I don't want to sin. Be careful. Be careful about the want to. Do you really want to get that close to sin? Do you really want to to have me walk up to my wife and crack my knuckles right in her face? But if we know that we can get away with some sin, and nobody's watching me, I can, I can turn on that, that uh, do that whatever sin you want to talk about. And nobody knows I'm on the internet and I can go to that porn place or I can, I can do whatever. Nobody will know. However, if your attitude is, yeah, nobody will know, but the mere thought of me doing that is so repulsive, I don't want to have anything to do with it. That's a good indication of the transformation of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Lord wants. If you know you can get away with the sin, but the mere thought of, comp- of doing the sin is repulsive to you, That is what God wants. That is the results of the work of the new creation in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the gratitude that is working in us for salvation. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. At one time, we all, this is verse 17, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching which, to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Anybody who from the heart believes the gospel is equally liberated from the tyranny of sin and destruction and recreated in God's image. And the law has absolutely nothing to do with that transformation. We started off in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Skip back over there and look at verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sin, sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. You know, it's a very hard thing not to get into the King James doing that. (laughs) For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that we might be made the righteousness of God who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's what we were talking about before, that constant walk, that communion with the Holy Spirit, that conscious awareness of His presence moment by moment, day by day, through the rest of our lives. And that is the process It's not keeping the laws. It's being aware of them because they do show the righteousness of God. But saying, I'm going to do this and not do that and do this and not do that and I'm going to make all these lists. That doesn't work. I'll never forget, shortly after I was saved, I got... I. Moved home and was going to Bible. I was going to go to Bible college, but uh, when I moved, I was living in Philadelphia when I got saved, and I moved back home to Pittsburgh. And so I went to this church the the uh, a year after I uh, uh, went back home, as a and didn't know it at the time, and and was you know, really unaware of what was going on too much. But it was an extremely a uh, legalistic church. Did you know that these are sin? These wire rim glasses? You have to have black plastic rims. And any of you late oh, any of you ladies in pants. Oh, oh, beast oh my heart, I'm out about to die. How dare you show up at the house of God in such Horrid clothing and list and list and regulation and regulation down, 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 down here. And what are they doing? Do you know what it reminds me of? The Pharisee in the temple. I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like this (coughs) publican. I fast twice a day. I, go, I say my prayers. I do this, I do that, I do the other thing. And you're so lucky to have me, God. We chuckle about it. If somebody was serious about that, don't you think that would be nauseating? Don't you think it's nauseating to God? Being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. 
just as that freed slave now has a new life without the restraints of his taskmaster, so the Christian has a new life without the destruction of sin and the whipping of the law. And who alone gives it? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now that we have this freedom, what are we going to do with it? Lesson for our lives. Number one, since we have been saved, has our lives been given over to seeking righteousness? Is that our heart's desire? Can you really say, I've, I've, since I made that profession of faith in Christ, I know, I can see a clear change in my life. I can see a new direction, a new desire. Because the things that I used to do, I, I, can't, even, I can't even bear to think of me doing them, let alone wanting to do them anymore. Is that really the new direction, a new focus in life? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a... New creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Or since my profession of faith, have I just continued to do the same things I've always done in the same way that I've always done them? One waving red flag, if that's the case. Number two, what is the main motivating factor in your life? Is it a desire for approval of other people? Or is it because I love the Lord and desire to please Him only? Well, what, what would so-and-so say? They'll laugh at me if I try to witness to them. Number three, by what standard do we live our lives? Remember that the law, though it is a reflection of the righteousness of God, can never help us to become righteous. In fact, it only makes sin sinnier. It makes it worse. Is our standard, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that? Or is my standard, I want to please God? And finally, number four, maybe you've never come to a point in your life that you see yourself as a sinner. Oh, I'm a pretty good person. And quite frankly, there are a lot of, when measured against other people, there are a lot of wonderful people in the world when measured against some, somebody else. But you know what the, the, the habit normally is? We'll find somebody that we know is worse off than I am, 
and I measure myself against that person, and I always come out the winner. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and showing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Who's my standard? God. If, we've never, if you've never come to the point where you see your need of a Savior, the Lord is speaking to you right now. Take the opportunity before you walk through those doors to speak to one of the elders. I'll be glad to speak to any of you. Don't leave this room today until you've gotten saved.